the height of World War II, as Adolf Hitler's bombers were pummeling England, Winston Churchill could be heard on the radio broadcasting his stubborn refusal to surrender. He continually urged them to fight on. A year or so ago, I had the opportunity to go down into the underground bunker there underneath the streets of London where Churchill and his cabinet directed the war effort. Fascinating a tour only recently opened to the public. You can tour through the rooms in the narrow hallways, see the little kitchen and the little bedrooms, the war room where all the maps were showing the movements of the troops. All of it left as it was when the war ended, sealed up, and only recently opened for people to come and, and observe. Everyone's desks were left the way they were, all the paper on the desk the same. Even one guy had a little bit of candy there still on his his desk. I looked into the room with a phone where Churchill called Roosevelt. It was an amazing tour back into time. If uh, you're familiar with this, you probably have heard or read about Churchill's addresses, one of them particularly famous. He, he said this, and I quote, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall never surrender. And then he gave this classic statement that he's famous for, among others. He said, and I have nothing to offer you, people of uh, that empire, but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. You know, maybe you ought to re-advertise Christianity Maybe it's time we witnessed to people and told them, now, if you come after Christ, you need to understand he demands you carry a cross. What if we told people that that Christ has nothing to offer beyond forgiveness but blood, toil, tears, and sweat? You ready to sign up or what? With the growing animosity of our culture toward the Christian church. Christians are growing, as I'm observing, frightened certainly, but it's interesting they're growing angry. That their convictions and freedoms are no longer respected or held. Where did God ever say to the believer that the world would be our friend? When did the church ever receive a promise from God that the world would ever respect, promote, applaud our convictions? Frankly, we have lived in the lap of luxury and freedom, and frankly, the church has come to believe these are her rights. The television is stocked with pseudo-pastors and pseudo-Bible teachers that continue to promote the lie that an easy path through life is synonymous with the narrow path. No wonder so many people today, especially in the American culture, who decide to give Jesus a try, and what horrible theology that is, but they give Jesus a try and then they're shocked when instead of receiving from heaven some catalog from which they pick out their lazy boy, they receive instead a sword a shield, and a helmet. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it or her. What did that mean? That means the gates of hell will try. Not just institutionally, but individually, personally. Be prepared. Perhaps it's time to re-advertise Christianity for what it really is. 
Maybe that's best rediscovered by rediscovering the life of Christ even as a baby and a little boy as it really was. For if he, the perfect man, the obedient son, the sinless savior had challenges and difficulties and struggles and hunger and sleeplessness and temptation and testing. And if he felt abandonment and misunderstanding and accusation and anger and financial needs and material hardship and weariness to the mind, body, and soul, who are we to demand anything less or anything else? You need to understand, ladies and gentlemen, that the shadow of the cross did not fall across his path When Christ turned 30, the shadow of the cross, this conflict between heaven and hell and the blood and the toil and the sweat and the tears, it came early. At eight days of age, he cried out in pain as he was inducted into the family of Abraham's covenant keepers through circumcision. At 40 days of age, Barely two months old, he is presented in the temple and redeemed by five hard-earned shekels that Joseph and Mary probably had a hard time parting with. This was the beginning of of an ordinary and yet challenging, difficult life. Maybe we need to rediscover him. Now, in the opening lines of Matthew's gospel, we're given some more insight into his boyhood. Turn to Matthew chapter 2, where, as you know, the Magi, the Magoi, the wise men, arrive in Jerusalem. They are the spiritual descendants of their revered wise man named Daniel, who centuries earlier had begun to teach the scriptures in Babylon, winning many converts, including a couple of kings, to faith in the Messiah. He'd left enough instruction so that that legacy continued. And now, centuries later, you have his spiritual descendants who are longing for a Messiah come from Babylon, Persia, to find him. They arrive with an earth-shattering message that should have really effectively stopped everything and everybody in their tracks. Where is he, verse 2, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We have seen his star. There are good men, good women who believe this star was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, creating a very brilliant light, which in fact it did. Some believe in its ellipses it made the sign of a fish, a symbol of what would become the Christian faith or church. In hiding. Others believe this star was a low hanging meteor or a rather erratic comet. I believe it was none of those, but it was in fact the Shekinah glory of God. Both the Hebrew word kachev and the Greek word aster for star are used often in the Bible to speak of brilliant light. I believe this was the glory of God. This is the radiant light that they've already seen surrounding the angels cascading upon those shepherds in those Bethlehemite hills. Luke 2 verse 9. This is going back into the Old Testament. The pillar of fire by night 
Exodus 13, 21. This is the consuming brilliance or fire of God on the mountaintop in Exodus 24 where Moses received the law. This is the shining face like the sun of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 2. This is the brilliant light that knocks Saul off his horse on the way to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, verse 3. This is what the Old Testament referred to in this analogy as the star that shall come forth from Jacob. Numbers 24, 17. And at the end of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, uh, you remember that book? He's called the bright and morning what? Star. Revelation 22, verse 16. The Shekinah glory is hovering above Jerusalem, and the wise men follow that. They're guided. They come to Jerusalem, and the text implies the light turns off. So they have to ask, where's the king of, of the Jews living? Now listen, why not just lead them all the way to Bethlehem? Because there are prophecies to fulfill And in this drama, there will be blood, toil, tears, and sweat. As you know, verse 5, Herod calls all the professionals together. Where is he supposed to be born? And they tell him, Bethlehem. So off to Bethlehem, the wise men go. Now, by the way, an astral conjunction, a meteor, or a comet, would not be able to identify a specific house, which verse 11 tells us they found. And inside that house, Matthew writes, was the child. Now, a couple of things to point out. The word for child is paideon. It can refer to a newborn baby, but most often it signifies a little boy, a toddler. Now, you also notice that the wise men did not arrive at a stable, verse 11, but at a a house. This is not a manger scene with a baby. This is a neighborhood scene with a toddler. And so as you track the boyhood of Jesus carefully, you find Luke, including the details of his birth in Bethlehem in a cave, a stable, some outside enclosure. We're not told specifically for animals. Then his presentation at the temple at the age of about two months. No younger than 40 days, according to the law. And now Matthew fills in for us some puzzle pieces. He informs us that that Joseph and Mary have decided to stay in Bethlehem. And why not? They've left a scandal back home with her pregnancy. So they decided to, to make a living here. And they found a home, perhaps to rent. Perhaps Joseph built a crude, a hut on borrowed land according to the customs of their their culture. But you discover that Joseph and Mary here in this scene have moved into a house in Bethlehem and Jesus is now a toddler, perhaps about a year to a year and a half old. And what happens next in that scene is the arrival of the wise men. And their entourage, not three wise men, there were three gifts, so we assume there were three. Probably an entourage of wise men and certainly a a, a number of soldiers who've been sent to protect protect the value of these gifts. They, They cause a traffic jam in Bethlehem as the Shekinah glory briefly illuminated the house where the little family lived. Once inside, Matthew tells us in verse 11, they see the child, the Pideon. A toddler, and they fall down 
and they worship him. They gave him gifts. Seneca, the Roman philosopher and writer who lived during the days of Christ, said that in Persia, which is where these men came from, no one ever approached a king without a gift. Seneca wrote, and gold was the proper gift for the king of men. It gave him frankincense, a substance used in temple worship to serve as fragrant offerings, always attached to the meal offering, never the sin offering. This referred to the mediatorial work of Christ, the sinless one. They gave him myrrh as well. This was used for embalming the dead. It was a gift of faith. They were signifying that he had come to die. You see, the shadow of the cross fell over that little living room as these kingmakers gave this God-toddler gifts that declared he was king, gold, that he was the mediator between heaven and earth, frankincense, and that his mission in, in coming included dying myrrh. Now, you remember they promised Herod that they would return and give him the street address so that he could go and worship the Messiah as well. Verse 12 informs us that the Magi went home on a different interstate than the one they came on. They were warned of this maniac in Jerusalem. Now, why the warning? Well, Herod had decades earlier already been awarded by the Roman Senate the title King of the Jews. He had done a lot of good for the Jews. He wanted their favor. Uh, he wanted their affection. He rebuilt their temple. He returned taxes to the people during difficult times, and that's always a good idea. You're slow, but you're getting there. I don't know if anybody's listening in D.C., but I thought I'd throw it in just in case. He built theaters and racetracks for entertainment. He, he rebuilt port cities for commerce. He was an old man by the time of Christ's birth. Most believe, historians from his era tell us he was inflicted with venereal diseases and for the most part at this point was nearly completely insane. In fact, until he died, Herod had become insanely jealous of his throne. He murdered every rival he had. He was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. He married a Jewess to gain favor. She was from an aristocratic family. and He tried to gain popularity, but after marrying her, he murdered her. He killed her 17-year-old brother and then put on a lavish funeral and pretended to weep. He put to death several of his own sons in order to stamp out any threat of assassination. He was a sadistic killer who slaughtered officers and generals and senators and soldiers and citizens that he suspected of any disloyalty. In fact, one historian that I read of, in fact, just recently came to him. He was a veteran of many wars. He came to Herod and he said, listen, you need to understand that there isn't a common soldier who doesn't side with your sons. And many of the officers openly curse you. He thought this would gain favor with Herod. But Herod ordered the man put on the rack and stretched until he cried out name after name after name. He even confessed the names of innocent men, anything to stop the torture. But Herod pressed them to continue until the man died. Then Herod rounded up 
all the accused and had them torn to pieces by his soldiers. And while they were being literally hacked to pieces, the historian in that day says that Herod, livid with rage, jumped up and down as he screamed for them to die. Now you can imagine why the wise men who came into Jerusalem somewhat naively asked, oh, where's he who's been born king of the Jews? They had no idea the madman they had encountered. They had no idea of the firestorm that they would ignite by their simple question. But don't miss the irony that the only person in this Jerusalem scene who believed the wise men was Herod. He was the only one who took them seriously. By the way, you can discover in this paragraph the three most common responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ then and today. That he was born the God-man. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty as the right to rule our lives and our hearts. He rose from the dead. He's coming back to judge the world. That message provokes the same responses today in our generation as it did in the scene. I'll give you three of them. Number one, hostility and pride. That's Herod. There is no king but me. I will abdicate my throne for no one. No one has the right to tell me what to do with my life. I will surrender my will to no one besides I, me and mine. Hostility and pride. Secondly, indifference and religious activity. The Messiah... It's going to be born in Bethlehem. It's that way. Now we've got stuff to do. We've got sacrifices to perform. We've got ritual to keep up with. You're in our way. We're busy. Go see if you can find whatever you're looking for. Third, worship and personal sacrifice. They come into the house. Joseph is evidently working. Mary's there with a little toddler and they fall down before him and worship. And they give him gifts. And because he is a normal, ordinary toddler, it's my guess that he's not interested in the gifts. He's playing with the boxes. (laughs) What happens next in Matthew 2 is the fulfillment of three prophecies. And this is where I wanted to get to. They are among the few clues and insights we have into the boyhood of Jesus. Now, verse 13 sets the stage for the first of these three prophecies we'll cover together. We'll simply call this escape into Egypt. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now, when they had gone, that is the Magi, they've left. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up! Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. See, once Herod realized the Magi had gone back a different way, he would only assume that they had warned the parents as well of this one born king of the Jews. So in the middle of the night, get up, Joseph, which meant Joseph didn't finish his sleep. 
Get up, get your family ready. Mary, hurry, get Jesus dressed. Get out the door. The aorist tenses of these verbs indicate quick, single actions. In the middle of the night, get up, get dressed, get out, run, flee. You don't have time, Joseph, to pack that cart with furniture you've carefully uh, made from scratch. Mary, you don't have time to, to gather all the clothes. You're going to have to leave the crib. You've got to run. Where are we going? Egypt. Another country. You'll hide out until I tell you. Verse 14, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. He was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. In other words, the evil and the hatred of Herod in his murderous attempt to catch and kill the Christ child. We're given a peek. Behind the blood, sweat, toil, and tears at the sovereign control of God. And guess what? The evil, cruel, insane paranoia of Herod is actually used to fulfill the predictions of God's word and the purposes of God's will. But don't miss it. This is a hard path. Fortunately, they'll have money for the trip from the gold that had just been given them. But little else. Have you ever taken your family on a trip? How much did you prepare? How much time did you spend packing? One suitcase per person. Good luck with that. My wife and I traveled to foreign countries like Minnesota. (laughs) France, Austria, England. Talk about thinking through the packing process that we did. The traveling dates. And the schedule, so much preparation, money, we got it. Passports, got them. Itinerary, got it. Tickets, got them. Carry-ons, yep. Bags we're putting on, got those two. The right thing to read on the journey, where we're going to land, the whole thing, and even a little pack of gum, if I remembered, to take care of the popping in our ears as that big Boeing 777 ascends. We get to pick the time of our departure. We know where we're going to land We know where we're going to spend the night. It's all mapped out. That's how we do it. That would certainly be God's will, as far as I'm concerned. Slip into the middle of God's will for Joseph and Mary. No time for any of that. No map. No no choice of departure. No time to pack. They left everything but what they could wear and carry. In fact, in verse 13, the word for flee... In your English Bible, Joseph, flee, is from the Greek word fugo, which gives us our transliterated word, fugitive, fugitive. In other words, Joseph, take Mary and Jesus and run for your lives. You are Israel's most wanted. Why? Because Herod wants to kill your little boy. So where do we run? Egypt. The grammar in this text indicates that their flight is the beginning of action that is to be continued. In other words, they were not to stop for very long until they reached the safety of Egypt and beyond the reach of Herod. From Bethlehem to the border of Egypt was about 75 miles. Going into the country, perhaps Alexandria, we're not told, where there's a large Jewish population 
would be another hundred miles. Joseph is not given any specific address. He wasn't told there'd be anybody waiting for them when they arrived, where they would be staying, not even directions for the safest route. Just run! In the middle of the night. Now wait. Wait a second. God could have protected Joseph and Mary and Jesus in that house right under the nose of Herod. He could have struck every soldier dead when they came across the threshold. He he could have performed some kind of miracle so that they never saw the house. Like, you know, the stories of Bibles smuggled in. The communist guards never saw them. He could do that kind of Event or exercise, couldn't he? But he didn't. He chose to protect them by the very ordinary and unmiraculous system by means of flight. You know what this means? This means the will of God meant hardship and suffering, but he would sustain them through it. The message was delivered to them supernaturally, no question. The Word of God arrived in dreams. The Word of God has arrived to us in this book that you hold in your lap. And His Spirit, through our conformity to the Word that we have, provokes our hearts and our minds as we take steps in obedience to Him. We don't get all the answers. We don't get enough information that we'd like to have. But we have enough light for the next step. And even they are taken with timidity at times. So you need to understand that the father did not do something for the son and his mother and stepfather that he withholds from you. Now, I've got to stop here for a minute and tell you the medieval church, in fact, earlier than that, couldn't imagine this would be the will of God. This isn't the way it works. And so the apocryphal writings compiled legends about their journey to Egypt and their stay in Egypt. It it sort of clarified for our thinking that certainly Joseph and Mary wouldn't be punished for obeying God. You know, for people who follow God, the road levels out. And so they crafted all these legends, all these myths, mysticism. Like one legend where it said that Mary and Jesus needed a, a place to sleep one night and they sought refuge in a cave. It was so cold, this legend says, that the ground was covered with frost A little spider recognized Jesus and wished so much that he could do something to keep him warm that he spun his web across the entrance of the cave so thick that it hung down like a curtain and the cave became warm and cozy. That's Charlotte's web. That's not the Bible. Other legends record that they're traveling and as they travel, the the animals all kneel as they pass them. The legend of them coming to a grove of fruit trees and is too high. Jesus commands those trees to bend over where Joseph can pluck the fruit. And then he commands a spring of water to come from the roots of that tree so they can be nourished. I mean, this is more like a triumphal entry. This is a holiday trip. Water, food on command, nice animals, accommodating animals. In fact, there's one legend that Mary was having trouble sleeping one night and an angel came and played hymns on a violin. That's what we would expect. 
Their stay in Egypt is riddled with myths and legends. Like the one where Mary is washing the swaddling clothes of the baby Jesus. She's not, he's not wearing swaddling clothes at this point, but never mind that. She hangs him out on the line to dry, and a demon-possessed boy comes by, touches some of the clothing, and is instantly exercised. A number of accounts of Jesus' bathwater, which according to the Apocrypha was especially powerful. His bathwater healed a princess of leprosy. It healed anybody who came in contact with it. And even early on in these apocryphal writings, Mary is sort of at the gate. They come and intercede and she allows them to come and Jesus performs the miracle. According to the legends, Egypt was a vacation. Every need was instantly filled and met And suffering and hardship were eliminated, not only in their lives, but the lives of everybody around them. Little Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Listen, we're clearly told in John's Gospel that the turning of water into wine at the wedding feast was the very first miracle Jesus performed. The first one, the Arche Samion, the beginning of the attesting signs. This was the one, this was the first one where he began to demonstrate at age 30 as he announced, began to announce who he was. This was one of those attesting miracles. This was proof. It's time now. And so he performs this first miracle. For now, there are no special miracles to turn Egypt into paradise. Ladies and gentlemen, God has never promised to turn your Egypt into paradise. This is not paradise. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, The escape of Joseph and Mary and their little toddler from Bethlehem that night, their long journey to Egypt, was the same kind of journey that every other ordinary family would have had to endure. There are no angels playing on violins. There are no bowing Uh, Animals, there are no trees bending over. In fact, their journey was all the more difficult. They are Israel's most wanted. I can imagine Joseph every other minute looking behind him to see if the soldiers, someone from Herod is coming. I would imagine Joseph and Mary imagined the sounds of hoofbeats over every hilltop. They couldn't stop rest any longer than they had to or they could allow themselves their hearts never really stopped beating all the way to Egypt and I believe they were along the way saying to one another in their hearts why? what did we sign up for? God's angel told them a little bit this is going to be the fulfillment of my word verse 15 out of Egypt I called my son, this is, this is the fulfillment of one more prophecy that would authenticate the Messiah. God said he'll come out of Egypt. And now Egypt becomes their hiding place until Herod dies. Now let me pause long enough to tell you that Jesus is, is becoming then a picture of Israel's calling from that same country. Israel was often spoken of as the sons of God, or even the son of God, Hosea 11, verse 1. So the son of God will illustrate Israel's deliverance. But there's even more to that. Jesus Christ will not only illustrate Israel and their deliverance, he will illustrate the deliverer. You remember there had been another deliverer, this one born in Egypt. He had also avoided a death warrant by the king who commanded that all the Jewish baby boys be what? Killed. Murdered, 
Pharaoh, this king, had ordered the killing of all Jewish males. Moses was hidden away by his quick-acting parents and eventually led the people out of bondage. But this deliverer, according to Hebrews chapter 3, is the greater Moses. They both came out of Egypt. They both lead their people out of bondage. But the deliverance of Moses was temporary and insufficient. The deliverance of Jesus Christ is eternal and sufficient. If you go back to Matthew 2, verse 16, you have the second prophecy that is about to be tragically fulfilled. The text says, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. And he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now the actions of Herod defy our imagination. He's around 70 years of age here. He's diseased, crippled. He's infected with untreatable diseases. In fact, the historians record during his lifetime that, that his intestines were rotting from the inside out. His bodyguards had to rotate frequently because they could not bear the stench of even being around him. His physicians couldn't heal him. The warm baths he ordered couldn't soothe him. His body is covered with ulcers, his legs too swollen. Physicians say his ankles were nine inches around. But he will not leave his throne. Even though he knows his death is imminent, he, he grasps his power. He is, frankly, the perfect picture of depraved, stubborn mankind that will not bow until the day they die or even after it's too late. One of his final orders is to round up hundreds of prominent Jewish citizens. They are arrested. They're placed in the arena. Their soldiers are told to feed and give them water but to keep them alive, but keep them locked in. He ordered his troops that on the day he died, these Jews, prominent Jews, were to be killed. His command has survived the centuries. He said, and I quote, When I die, the Jews may not mourn me, but by the gods they will mourn. For now there's great mourning in Bethlehem. Historical demographers estimate that there were probably 30 or more children under the age of two in Bethlehem and surrounding areas during and in this century. Instead of the religious leaders and the rabbis all rushing to Bethlehem to crown the young Messiah as their king, the soldiers of Herod have stampeded into the village of Bethlehem and the surrounding areas, taking little boys from their mother's arms and putting them to death. Rachel is weeping. She is weeping for her children. This represented all Jewish mothers who wept over Israel's great tragedy in the days of the deportation. This is a quote from, from Jeremiah. They wept as their little ones were taken away. That then is the foreshadowing of the mothers in Bethlehem in this region who will weep over the massacring of their little boys. But, but don't miss this. 
Herod's crime is even more wicked because he knew the little boy he was trying to kill was the king of the Jews, the Messiah. Then Herod died. And by the way, just to close up that one loop, his sister and her husband were supposed to be the ones to signal the soldiers at the arena to begin killing the prominent Jews. But instead, they went personally and opened the doors of the arena and allowed the Jews to go free. And I couldn't help but think of that irony when the final Antichrist is killed, the Jewish nation will be fully free. Now we have one more prophecy to fulfill. I'm going to call this next prophecy, and we're going to wrap it up fairly quickly here, but we've seen the escape into Egypt and that prophecy, verse 15. We have a bloodbath in Bethlehem and that prophecy, verse 18. And now we have what I'll call for our outline simply, nobody's in nowhere. Because that's who they were, and that's where they were living I'm going to come back to this, by the way, in detail. As we talk about uh, where they were living, we're going to deal with Nazareth, the upbringing of Jesus and what it meant to be raised. I've already entitled the study, Parenting the Perfect Child. And I don't have any illustration I can think of on the planet. There are none. But I want to explore with you his upbringing in Nazareth. Now, Now, let's just find out how they got there. Notice verse 19. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Again, in the middle of the night. Poor Joseph can't get a night's sleep. Here it comes again. Well, the difference in this text is the lack of urgency. It was a dream. He could finish his sleep. There's no need to flee, no need to run, no need to panic, no need to hide, no need to fear. In fact, notice the reassuring message the angel delivers at the end of verse verse 20. He he tells him, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Interesting, we don't have time. It's plural. It isn't just Herod. It's somebody else. Maybe many others who wanted him dead. They're all gone. They're dead now. Now the text tells us, verse 21 So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. So he's headed there. Uh, Now something happens that strikes his heart with fear. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Why not? I would have been too. You need to understand that Archelaus is worse than his father. If you can imagine it. In fact, he inaugurated his reign by killing 3,000 Jews in the temple at Passover. His reign was so despicable that even Augustus, the Roman emperor, who was no saint himself, banished Archelaus after nine years of atrocities. So Joseph has every reason. I mean, there we are traveling. He has the reassurance. He's headed back and suddenly he hears news. Maybe it's another traveler. Somebody tells me, you won't believe who's on the throne, Archelaus. He's stricken with fear. God delivers to him a little more information. He's warned by God in another dream, verse 22, the latter part. And he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. In other words, here's where you're going to live. You pick, it's a large region, there's a lot of real estate, and you pick your little town wherever you want to be, and 
And Joseph just so happened to choose Nazareth. And guess what? Verse 23 tells us, This fulfilled what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Nazareth was located about 55 miles north of Jerusalem. I'll tell you at least this much today. The inhabitants were known as uneducated, crude. Historians living in that day called them rude and uncivilized. It was an insignificant village. One day one of Jesus' future disciples would say, how can anything good come out of there? This is not where you would expect to find God the Son But I want to say that because you need to understand the earthly origins of Christ are as challenging and difficult as you can imagine. An outdoor shelter for a birthplace. His parents have to run as fugitives, run for their lives, immigrating to Egypt and then having to move back and then moving into Galilee and and locating in, in Nazareth. They're going to live their lives for the next 29 years or so in Normal, challenging, obscurity. Listen, Jesus Christ became one of us. He's one of us. In fact, I want you to understand when I say this, he's he's actually more ordinary than any of us. I mean, he chose to come in as low as low could be in his humiliation. And Joseph and Mary, i got to tell you, what character, right? What character, what obedience, what perseverance, what confusion, what pain, what fear, what danger, what desperation as they clung to brief announcements without most of the details as they moved from place to place to place to place. Let me quickly mention three thoughts and leave them with you as you think through them on your own. I've I've hinted at them and said them in other ways. Let me say them this way in principle form. Number one, the will of God does not circumvent the challenges of life. We would expect it to be that way. The road would level out. There would be downhill slopes right at the right moment. And at the right moment, as far as we're concerned, instead it goes uphill. The love of God, secondly, does not eliminate the attack of the enemy. The promises of God, thirdly, do not lessen the responsibility of the believer. How easy is it to think the will of God and the love of God and the promises of God, which lead us to a closeness with God and and then closeness to God, we would think would never mean blood, sweat, Toil, tears. Surely for the godly, life would be good. Look here. Here you have it. You have the beloved son. You have the uh, God-chosen mother. You have the God-appointed stepfather. They are surrounded by God's love. They are enveloped in his will. They are communicated to by his promises. You are fulfilling prophecies of old, Joseph and Mary. Your life is a fulfillment of my promises to the world. And what did they encounter? Blood, sweat, toil, and tears. You are in the middle of my will. Now run for your lives. 
My hat is off to them. And I have come to greatly appreciate them because they did. Time and time again, they would change everything to obey God. One author I read recently said as he traveled in England, he saw in a graveyard the tombstone of an old cavalier soldier who'd lost his property and then his life in fighting for the king. Veteran of many wars, faithful, he was a loyalist to King Charles. His epitaph read simply this. He served King Charles with a constant, dangerous, and expensive loyalty. Isn't that good? What a great testimony for the Christian who allows the shadow of the cross to fall across his or her path. What a testimony of allegiance to serve our king with a constant, dangerous, expensive loyalty, no matter what the cost, be it blood, Sweat, toil, and tears. Thank you for a living description of your sovereign control over the affairs of mankind. That even the evil of our world will aid in the fulfillment of your divine purposes, of which we only know a sliver. So help us, as we have observed Joseph and Mary, to be a little more like them. To be loyalists. To not confuse hardship and testing with your love and your will being absent. Cause us to be willing to get up and to move, to change to obey. I can't help but think of the day when we will come back, Lord, with you and we will visit the bunkers here where we battled. What a perspective we're going to have then. Help us to serve you, submit to you, surrender to you, even if the shadow of a cross is upon our path. As a believer, would you recommit to the Lord that today? As you're doing that, friend, if you're here without Christ, the Messiah is your sovereign Lord and Master. If he is not on the throne of your heart, you've never accepted him, you've never abdicated to his rule, I pray that your response will not be refusing out of pride. I pray that it will not be this lackadaisical apathy, indifference. Yeah, I've heard that before. I pray that you will fall down and worship him. Help us, Spirit of God, as we follow you wherever you lead us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.